0: So over the last number of weeks, we've been trying to answer together the question, how do we live God's way? How do we live as followers of Jesus? But particularly, how do we do it in a polarized environment like the world that we live in right now, where emotions are heightened, where divisions are high, where everyone seems to be against each other? There's divisions in families, there's divisions in churches, there's divisions in our world. How do we engage that? What's God's call on our lives? And we've said that the best answer we can give is a pretty simple answer, and that is that love never fails. And we've talked about the idea that part of who we are is we are temples, right? We said we are not towers. We don't uh, build edifices that keep people out or that uh, condescendingly look down on other people. Rather, Uh, as God's people, we're sent out into the world as temples. And Paul says, you're the temples of the Holy Spirit. The idea of the temple is the place where heaven and earth meet up, as a place where God dwells so that He's accessible to the people. And that this is our job, to be where people are. And so, we've talked then about the reality of posture. uh, The need for us to be proximate to people, to be near them and to have a posture of hospitality, and last week we talked about a posture of listening. People who are prone to listen rather than to talk, and we suggested openly that we usually get that backwards, and that's why James writes so famously, be quick to listen and slow to speak. He writes it because he knows it's not true of us, Uh, and we need help with that. And today what we want to do then is begin to say, okay, we've talked about posture, we've talked about needing to be near, uh, and we've talked about identity as being temples, then how do we actually do this love thing? What does love actually begin to look like? And it's really hard uh, to teach an overarching sermon like this uh, in, in, in utter practicalities. And so my hope for you this morning is that as I paint broad strokes, you'll be able to see next steps for you uh, or affirmations for what you're already doing or maybe slight course corrections uh, for what you're doing in order to really lean into this call of love on our lives by God. This is what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Ephesians 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says, listen, on the heels of everything that God has done for us, our call is to walk in in the way of love. So you ask and I ask the right question. Okay, what does that mean? How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, it's important for us to pause on this word love for just a minute. And for some of you, you've heard some of these points before, but for some of you, this will be new. Uh, Either way, it's important for us to be centered on this truth. That is that Most of us, especially in the Western world, have no real concept of what love in the biblical sense actually means. We think of love in terms of ooey, gooey, feely, sappy, rom-com kind of realities, right? Like Titanic, and she'll never let him go as she lets him go, right? (laughs) Or, or (laughs) Or anything like that. Uh, or we think of love in terms of camaraderie uh, and uh, civil uh, connection and, and things like that. Uh, and all of these concepts of love were available to the writers of the New Testament because they were well known in the society in which they lived. Right? There was a, a Greek word for love that is eros, it's kind of a a um, an attraction-based love, a sexual love, an erotic love. We get our word for that. Uh, there was a, a word for love that's kind of like camaraderie, friendship, uh, civil engagement, uh, being people together. That's the word phileo. Right? We get our word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. That's the idea there. All of these words were were acceptable and used. And instead, the New Testament writers All of them, this is not just one of them, choose a word that was almost not used at all in the Greek language for what they mean. Because they wanted to have this love stand out beyond the rest. Uh, Many of you know this. It's the word agape, or the verb form agapao. And it's a love that is at its basis self-sacrificing. It's an act of volitional love. It's a choice, not a feeling. It's the act of laying down power for the sake of another. And in the world in which the New Testament writers were writing, this word love was almost never used because it was looked upon as weakness. It was looked upon as something you shouldn't do. And yet, it's the very thing that defines who Jesus is according to the New Testament writers. When we talk about love, this is what we're talking about loving not because you feel like it, because you choose to. And a love that isn't necessarily easy, but maybe costs you something. That forces you to set aside some of your power, right? We talk about this all the time. Most of you be like, I don't have any power. And I would say to you, you've got way more power than you think. Right? You lay down your power or your rights or whatever in order to serve or care for or better another person. Here's the deal. In our world today, just like the Greco-Roman world of the first century the New Testament writers were writing in, that kind of love is also frowned upon. Now, no one would write that or say that publicly, but the course of the world makes this incredibly countercultural. It's why in moments like this, when the world is so divided, the church should look like something utterly different. And yet, we really struggle to do it because it's challenging and it's hard. What makes it even harder is that Jesus takes this concept, agape, and He spreads it wide. He says, listen, you should agape not only your friends, but also your enemies. I don't know who enemies are for you. Perhaps it's someone of a different political party. uh, Or perhaps it's your next door neighbor. Perhaps it's uh, someone at work who's after you or you're both going for the same promotion or whatever it is. Or perhaps it's just Dallas Cowboys fans. Let's be real, right? God says, Jesus says, agape is universal. It's to your friends and to your enemies. And by saying that, it's to everyone in between. Furthermore, it's to people who are holy and people who are unholy, right? The Pharisees couldn't understand this. The religious people of Jesus' day, they couldn't comprehend it, that Jesus would hang out with people who weren't churchgoers. And Jesus says, listen, agape love is for non-Christians as much as it is for Christians. Right? Who are the non-Christians in your life? The people who work. Perhaps your neighbors. Dallas Cowboys fans, right? I right, won't go there again. I probably will go there again. It's not just Christians or non-Christians. It's the idea of, of your countrymen or foreigners, right? Jesus is constantly pushing against these things by who He's connecting with and who He's offering love towards. The idea is not only is agape volitional choice, self-sacrifice, making it really difficult, but we're called to do it to everyone. Not just the people who make us super happy. We find ourselves in a season where if we did this, it seems to me the Gospel would have profound effect in our world. Because most people can't conceive of this kind of love. So what does it look like? Well, to try to make sense of that, we're going to go to a super famous poem from the Apostle Paul. Many of you are familiar with it because lots of you have gone to weddings in your life and it seems to be read at every single wedding. And that's a good thing uh, because it's a testament of what love actually looks like. But I think as we read through this, we'll see... That this is not emotional, this is volitional. These are choices. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, this is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Does not dishonor others. It's not self seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Paul putting flesh on this concept of love. So, there are 15 declarations about love here. Uh, And what I want to do is walk through them. We've got to walk through them really quickly. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to get frustrated with me because this is taking too long. And You understand now, I've got to paint with super broad strokes, but hopefully this will help us understand volition uh, and the call to love on us. The first thing that Paul says is that love is... Patient. If you were with us in the beginning of the year when we journeyed through the book of James, this word for patient showed up a couple of different times in the book of James. In the original language, it's the word macro thumai, right? And we said that thumai is kind of like an outburst. Like if your kids, or maybe you, ever had like a super tantrum in public before, do you ever, ever witness one of those, right? I don't have to say if it was you or not. Uh, and the word macro is long. It doesn't mean like a long tantrum. We've seen those it actually means like putting off the tantrum for a long time right in other words it's like withholding acting out against what's happening to you the idea of being patient and it has a real concept of endurance and of enduring significant even egregious difficulties many of you are living this right now i know this because i talk to you and i pray with you you're in relational the relational struggle of trying to love patiently to not act against what's happening to you can i say something for just a moment this does not mean that you are called in jesus name to be a doormat that's silliness and goofiness to do so would be to deny the dignity of human life we disagree with that however it does mean that you are meant to endure To be patient. What does that look like in your relationship with your family, with your extended family? I've heard stories over the last four years, especially in this hyper politically charged season, of families who are at each other's throats because of political differences. What does it mean to love with patience? Does it mean to love with patience to your neighbor, to your coworker? Does it mean to love with patience to each other in this fellowship? The second thing that Paul says is that love is kind, right? And this word certainly means kind, but it also sort of means like easy. In fact, uh, the most famous place that's used in all the New Testament, uh, some of you will be familiar with this, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary. Remember this story? He says, and I will give you rest uh, goes, and, and, and take my burden. Uh, he says, I'll take your burden and you take my burden, which is easy. Right? That word easy is the same word translated kind here. So you get the idea. It's like pleasant, <laughs> bearable. And, and really in its, in its usage outside of the Bible, this word was often used of something that was helpful. <laughs> right? Actually being helpful. So you could say it is the active partner to patience. Not just enduring, but actually returning in usefulness. We know this is true because one of, if not the most common name of slaves, remember slavery was a real live thing in the first century world, unfortunately. And one of the most common names given to a slave was this word. And they didn't mean kind, they meant you're useful to me. You help me. You get stuff done. What would it mean for us to be known rather than launching out in tirades, even if they're rightly deserved, but instead looking to how we can be pleasant, kind, and helpful, and useful to those who are around us? Then Paul turns and he starts using negative ideas. Things that love is not. The first thing he says is that love does not envy. Now we know what envy is. It's wanting something, right, that we don't have. And In the original language of the word, the verb actually has this concept of like a pot that's boiling over. Right? It's, you want something so much you can't even contain it. It's out there and you're, you're after it. We know what that envy looks like and feels like, but there's even something more particular going on with this word to these people. Right? Because Paul, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, is addressing a bunch of issues that are happening in the church, and he ultimately gets to this point in the letter. But earlier in the letter, he uses this same word, envy, to talk about the rivalries that are happening in the church. Um, many of you won't be familiar with this, but some of you might. In One of the real reasons that Paul writes the book, uh, the letter, to the Corinthians, that we're, we're reading from here, is that there was lots of rivalries in the church. And so you might remember in the, in the opening chapters, Paul, Paul says things like, Some of you say I'm with Apollos, and some say I'm with Paul, and he, but we're all with Christ, Paul's trying to say. Stop it with the rivalries. And the envy the, the that's attached to that is the idea of significance or power or influence or ideological significance, right? And Paul's saying, that's not love. That's a grasp for human power. In fact, if you remember from our study through the book of James, James has strong words for what happens when we live in envy. Do you remember this? James chapter 4. He says, You desire, but you do not have. That word desire is the word translated envy. So you kill. We, we paused and, and asked the question. We were going through the book of James. Did someone actually murder someone? I guess it's possible, but James is also talking on a deeply relational scale. Is that when we envy, we are destructive relationally to others? You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight, and in so doing, destroy relationships. You do not have because you do not ask for God. James is saying the thing you're after isn't even a thing. Well, you should be finding identity and, and, and uh, purpose in your relationship and connection with God. Over these last four or five years, especially over these last two or three or 18 years, know, how long has COVID been going on? 26,000 years? I don't know, right? How many relationships have been destroyed? Destroyed. And I will tell you, a large part of the reason is actually envy. We wouldn't label it like that. We're just standing up for what we believe in, or we're rebutting what someone else says, but we're really envying the position of power or significance. Again, I'll remind you, as I say, just in case anyone's getting uncomfortable, None of these sermons are intended to change your views on COVID, politics, anything like that. That's not my place. It's not my point. I trust you, and hopefully you trust me, to engage that uh, personally on the basis of the Gospel. We're talking about our disposition towards other people who might not hold the same opinion as you. How much destruction has happened? And how much destruction has happened at the hands of Christians? What a tragedy. What an utter tragedy. This isn't love. Love does not envy. He goes on to say, Love does not boast. The original word in the original language is actually meant to be a windbag. You ever know one of those? You ever been in contact with a windbag before, right? You know exactly what this means, right? And every once in a while, in your worst moment, you too have been a windbag, right? I, I'm guilty. I'm a windbag way too often. Right? Rachel, somewhere in kids' ministry, is like, windbag up front. <laughs> right? I love to hear myself talk. It's unfortunate. It's true. Uh, but it's unfortunate. It's not a uh, something to be reveled in. It's a destruct- It can be destructive. It doesn't mean you don't have something worthwhile to say. It doesn't mean you shouldn't start a blog. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make a post on social media. It does mean you ought to evaluate why you're doing what you're doing. Is it about being heard? Or is it about trying to offer help in the midst of a challenging situation? Way too many of us have gotten to the habit of screaming so that we can be heard over top of other people. And that's the way of the world. It's not an act of love. What does it mean? in your family situations? What does it mean in in this church? What does it mean amongst this church to other churches? What does it mean to your neighbors, to your co-workers, all of whom are viewing the world in different ways? What does it mean to not be someone who boasts, who needs to be heard all the time, but rather acts in love? Again, I pause and say, there are many, many times that we are called to speak difficult truth to people. I am not suggesting we never do that. We do that. But it is always meant to be done in the context of a significant relationship for the purpose of reconciliation. Most of us, uh, when we go to speak truth, we're not doing it in those avenues, unfortunately. What does it mean to lean into this reality of love? To not be boastful? Uh, Paul goes on to say, love is not proud. Probably a better translation is arrogant. In fact, Paul uses this word arrogant seven times in all of his writings. And guess what? Six of those times are in this very letter to these people. Why? Because they're arrogant people. <laughs> right? A big part of the problem that's going on in Corinth is is a whole bunch of people who think they're the stuff, Right? What's the old phrase from like a quarter century ago? All, all that in a bag of potato chips or something like that, right? This is who they think they are. Either because they're, they're using certain supernatural gifts or because they're part of Apollos' clan or Paul's clan or because they're a teacher or they're this over there. They think they're the best and they look down on everyone else so much so that in their gatherings, even when they're having communion together, some people are starving while other people are gorging themselves. Why? Arrogance. And Paul's like, this isn't love. None of this is love. Many of us have found an identity in things outside of our identity in Christ. And because of it, it it always leads towards arrogance where identity in Christ always leads towards humility. Elitism in all of its forms is condemned by God. Including religious elitism. Jesus gets semi-nasty with only one group of people. The religious elite. Right? He calls them things like whitewashed tombs. Right? To be culturally elite, to be ethnically elite, to be socioeconomically elite, to be religiously elite, any of these things is not to walk in the way of love. It's rather to view the world through your position of status. And the Bible would say that's actually arrogance. What does that mean? How do we be people of love where we live, work, play, engage? How do we do that as a church together? Paul says, love does not boast. Then he says, love does not dishonor others. This word dishonor in the original language actually means to be out of shape. And so the idea was to like act inappropriately. uh, To act in a way that wouldn't be acceptable in that moment. Uh, Or we could just put it pretty crassly and say, you're just rude, right? Uh, What was that show when I was growing up? Remember the show fam? Fam, family Matters, that's not it. I forget what it was. Full House, right? The little girl was always like, that's, that's so rude, whatever she said, right? This is Paul's saying here. That's not love. When you act rude or nasty or, or snarky or, or condescendingly or when you make a scene, right? I, I had a heartbreaking conversation a couple of weeks ago um, with someone who was recounting the stories of how uh, one of their parents had made such a scene publicly and against them and and on social media in so many ways that has put such significant distance between them all because they were approaching the COVID pandemic from different points of view what a tragedy what an utter tragedy and now there's brokenness and distance listen you have an opinion on COVID you have an opinion on politics You have an opinion on whether or not they should put that Wawa on the corner of Oakland and Linden. I'm in favor, by the way. Right? Always in favor of another Wawa. Can I get an amen? And you should have an opinion. We want that. God wants that. You're wired differently. Part of the reason that the church is meant to be diverse is because we need a diversity of opinions. Not just about wawas, but about God and who He is and what it means to pursue Him and how we are to engage the culture around us. Without that diversity, we lack the true sense of who God is and what He's doing. We can't, in that sense, be people who explode Or make scenes or who are known by our rudeness or our crudeness because someone sees the world differently than us even if the way they see the world by the lens of our particular faith our faith in Christ is diametrically opposed to us we're not talking about changing what we think or what we know is truth we're talking about how do we live in love amongst people who think differently. Paul then goes on, and this is the next thing he says. Love, is a, love does not self-seek. Does right? not seek after itself. And this has to do with um, personal gain or betterment, uh, but specifically it has to do with personal rights. Now, I understand I'm about to step into really delicate territory, So, I'm asking for your grace if I misstep in some way. Hear what the Spirit needs to say. Dismiss whatever I've said in my human way. But Paul, again, is speaking in context here because he's written with this very word and concept earlier in this letter, just three chapters earlier, and it's all about rights. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, No one should seek their own good, but rather the good of others. Yowzers. Keep going. Is there more? Oh, there we go. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. We live in a world right now, in a country, because by nature of our our country and the way way we are organized, it's about rights, and I praise God and I thank God for that, and I'm not suggesting rights should be taken away. Don't mishear me. But all too often over these last couple of years, especially in the midst of COVID, I've heard people speaking about rights far more than I've heard people speaking about love. Listen, I'm not suggesting you ought to have a different opinion on masks than you do, a different opinion on vaccines than you do, or the pandemic as a whole. None of it. I get it. We don't, there's different opinions about it at all. But I do think a big part of forming that opinion has to be what does it mean for me to love? You might still come to the exact same conclusion you've come to. I get that. Fine. But we have to be people who can say part of what I'm do- why I'm doing what I'm doing is for the good of others. Not just for the good of me. Paul says this is what it means to love. Love. Love is not self-seeking. He goes on and says, love is not easily angered. The word for angered here is the idea of being up against something sharp. When I was growing up, my parents had a, uh, an old Chevy Malibu station wagon. Can you picture that in the early 80s, right? It's a beautiful gray <laughs> or silver, whatever it was. And um, the piping around the seats, you know, is a piece of wire covered in fabric. And over time, that wire snapped and started poking out. My sisters and I refer to it as the Jagger, right? And we would take these long trips. We had family on the other side of the state in western Pennsylvania. We'd take these long trips and we would fight and we'd battle over who had to sit with the Jagger, right? Because it's basically dagging inside of you. And Paul basically is like, we've all got to sit in the Jagger seat. This is what he's saying. Without erupting in anger without being people who are easily provoked. Let's put it this way, right? We have to grow a little bit of a thicker skin. No one is suggesting you have to agree, but it doesn't mean we have to erupt in anger towards other people. Not easily angered. Paul goes on. Number nine, it says... Love keeps no record of wrong. The word for wrong is actually the Greek word for evil. It's a stronger word than wrong. Right? So this is like, hmm, hard stuff. Paul says we keep no record of it. Uh, The Greek word for keeping record is logizomai, right? Logic, we get our word from that. Rationalizing about it. uh, Recording it in our mind. Paul says we don't do that. In other words, we're not keeping tallies of what people have done against us, because we're not looking to settle the score someday. One of the things I talk about regularly in premarital counseling with folks who are getting ready for marriage is, listen, you can't keep score in your marriage. Because if you do, you're destined for lots of frustration. How do I know that? Personal experience, right? Because I'm a great scorekeeper. I wanted to be a lawyer before I was called into ministry. I was keeping score on everything and sometimes fudging the score to make sure that I won, right? Paul says, listen, if we live that way, all we're going to do is be overflowed by how we've been wronged. Because Jesus has already told us, in this world, you're going to be wronged. You're going to encounter evil, but I've put you here on purpose as a beacon, as a light, as agents of... Love, you keep no record of wrong. He goes on and says, Love does not delight in evil. The idea here is when something bad happens to someone, right? Back to those enemies or Dallas Cowboys fans or whatever, right? When something goes wrong in their midst, love doesn't rejoice and say, They had that coming. Or finally. They got what they deserved. It has no, the idea here isn't understanding that there are consequences for action. The idea here is that true love doesn't rejoice whenever the kingdom of God doesn't win. Right? So whenever there's calamity or evil or difficulty or pain or harm or struggle, in anyone's life, love should not rejoice, grin, smile, or chuckle about it. Rather, the thing that's juxtaposed here, rather we ought to rejoice in the truth. And if truth is juxtaposed with evil in this idea, we understand what Paul's talking about here. The advance of God's kingdom. God's way of living. His kingdom ethic. Whenever we see it, even if it happens out of a different political party than we support, we ought to rejoice about it. Even if it happens in the midst of people we struggle to like, we ought to rejoice over it because the kingdom of God is moving forward. And then Paul finishes with four statements uh, that form almost uh, what what scholars would call an inclusio, right? So we'll take the the first and the last one. The idea here is they protect and persevere because both words literally mean endure. Endure. So Paul says, listen, love is here for the long haul. Love plants the flag and is going to stick with the journey come hell or high water. Life is full of struggles and relationships mean pain and misunderstanding and difficulty. But love says, I'm here for the long haul. Well, how on earth can love do that? It can do that because of the middle two statements in the inclusio. That love always trusts. Love always trusts. And love always hopes. Here Paul changes just a little bit. Because what he's not saying is you should always trust every human being. That would be foolishness. And what you should also not do is put your hope in other human beings. Even the best of them. Why? Because they're broken and they're going to mess up at times. Here, hope... And trusts, I believe, are directed at God. How can we be people who love, who endure in this kind of love that's patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not keeping a record? How can we even do this if we have hope and if we have trust placed in the right thing? If your hope and trust is in the next election, You can't do this. You can't live this way. It's impossible. Trust me. I've tried, right? If your hope and trust is in your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues to figure things out, you can't live this way. It's impossible. If your hope and trust is in legislation or Supreme Court rulings, you can't live this way. But, if your hope and your trust is actually in God, if your identity, therefore, is a settled matter, it's not up for grabs. No one can take it away from you, nor can they chip away at it. And truth is a settled matter for you. Then you can live this way. You're free to do it, because nothing's on the line. This is what Paul says. So we go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Where Paul says, walk in the way of love. But you remember what he said before it? He said, as dearly loved children walk in the way of love. And we remind you, and I remind myself, we love to the extent that we have received the love of God. I'm not talking about propositionally, intellectually, uh, theologically. All those things are good. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually receiving it. To the level you've received the agape love of God, you will be released and freed up to offer the agape love of God. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, we love just as Christ loved us and gave his life up for us. See, the beauty of the poem in 1 Corinthians 13 is it actually isn't an issue of commands. It's a poem about Jesus. But if we're going to live like Jesus, this is the character we're meant to embody. See, in Jesus we find out that God's love is both patient and kind. God has put up with a lot. Right? Right? As parents, have you taken a long trip with young, especially younger kids, maybe older kids, depends, right? In the car, right? And you're like, I know what this means. I've put up with a lot. I remember we were going on a long, uh, on a college tour a good distance away. We were traveling a good bit. And, you know, I was, I don't know, 17 or however old I was at the time, it was my parents were in the front seat. I had my Sony Discman, Man, remember those days? <laughs> I was right in the back. And I thought I was super cool with my foam ear things, nothing like the stuff you've got now, and I think I was listening to Green Day or something like that, right? And unbeknownst to me, I was also singing at the top of my lungs, right? Now, I'm not a great singer, I'm not a terrible singer, but I'm not a great singer. And you know what it's like when someone's singing to something they're listening to and it doesn't doesn't compute, but when you're singing, it sounds perfect, man. You're like right there, you could be that guy, right? You're on stage, you're doing the whole thing, you know? And I remember getting there. And my dad saying to me, that was the worst six hours of my entire life. <laughs> right? I wonder how often God thinks to himself, oh man, these kids in my back seat driving all through this life, singing Green Day at the top of their lungs, way off key. And I'm trying to do something good for them here. This is God has put up with a lot from us. Can we say that? But God is patient with us. So listen to what, how Paul writes about God in Romans chapter 2. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See this? That God is both patient and kind. Not reacting, but enduring our great rebellion against Him. And instead of reacting, choosing the opposite action of becoming useful for our salvation. And rescuing us. Listen, unless you're regularly meditating on truth like this, unless you're living and swimming in this water, unless when you read these things, it penetrates you deeply, you're not going to be people who live in agape love. Because you're not experiencing it. If you don't believe that God has had to be super patient to endure with you, you're going to struggle to be patient with other people. And in the same way, we see through the person and work of Jesus that God is not a God who envies or boasts or is proud. Far from it. This is what we are told about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Listen to what he says. Who, being in the very nature, God, elite, status, <laughs> proud, envy, all that stuff, right? Did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, right? Instead, he willingly set aside the power. Why agape? Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what Christ has done for us. If you are not regularly blown away by the truth that Jesus set aside the utter peace and luxury and comfort and power of heaven to enter into the mess and the scum and the dirt of this world and our lives, you're going to struggle to live in love in that way. And what's more, when Jesus finds Himself on the cross, what do we find out about His love? That His love does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It does keep no record of wrong. Think about it. I talk about the jagger in the Malibu station wagon. We talk about being up against sharp things. No sharper thing than the moment of crucifixion for Jesus. Iron nails being pounded into His wrists and His ankles. Being ridiculed publicly in front of everyone. If ever there was a moment for Jesus to lash out... It was then. And He didn't. And at the same time, He's being prompted and tempted by everyone around Him. Prove yourself. Save yourself. Seek yourself. And He resists because to do that would be to take from us the hope of salvation. Instead, Jesus does offer one thing. You remember? Forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And we're like, yeah, they do. They know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> but Jesus like, they, don't under, they, can't, they, they, they can't understand the, the massive nature of what's going on here and the brokenness inside them has led them to this moment. Jesus, in the perfect moment to count evil, refuses to count it. Listen to how Luke records it in his Gospel. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Him there along with the criminals, one on His right, the other on His left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They divided up His clothes by casting lots. People stood watching. The rulers even sneered at Him. They said, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked Him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, then seek yourself. Save yourself. Jesus resisted. Why? Because he agape loved you. If we're not regularly blown away by this, if we're not internalizing this, if we're not swimming in these Gospel truths with regularity, then we're not going to walk in the way of love. Because it's... it's Incredibly countercultural and counterintuitive to who we are. But when we're moved by receiving the love of Christ, we're changed for Him. In the same way, Jesus did not delight in evil but rejoiced in the truth. Jesus, in His ministry, was rejected by countless numbers. And rather than when thinking about their coming destruction, Jesus understood that in the year 70 A.D., uh, the Romans would crush Jerusalem and level it. As Jesus pondered that truth, after being rejected by these people and ultimately crucified by these people, He didn't say, "Well, they had it coming. He should have said that, right? Because they did. Instead, this is what He said. This is what He did. Uh, One before this one. As He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and He wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He sees the coming destruction. And instead of cheering it on, he weeps and is broken over it. This is who Jesus is. And then finally, that little inclusio at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love always protects. Love always perseveres. How? Because it always trusts and it always hopes. This is true of Jesus. Jesus. How did He endure? He planted the flag and He endured all the way to the cross. Why? Because His hope and His trust were rightly placed in God. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He goes on fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And it's this verse, Hebrews 12.3, that we finish on. If you are attempting to love in your own power, you will grow weary and you will lose heart. And I can testify to that truth. But the writer to Hebrews says something different here, doesn't he? He says, Consider him. Now, what's fascinating about this word consider is it's connected to that word count, right? All the way back in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Says, keeps no, keep, keep, love, keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't count wrongs. Remember that, right? That's the word logizomai. Logiz, logiz, this word here is ana logizomai. The word ana, the preposition, is an intensifier. <laughs> it says, you don't count the evils against you, but what you really count is what Christ has done for you. You see this? And when you do that, it enables you in a world that is incredibly divided, super polarized, where families are at each other, where emotions are heightened, it enables you to stand firm in love, to not lose heart, and to not grow weary. Can I pray with you?